preparation for this series and really this sermon, I did just a few basic searches on Google on prayer. I know that's probably dangerous, but the article seemed to break down into just a few different kinds of categories. The first kind of category is what is prayer? What is it? What does the Bible have to say about prayer? What are <laughs> the culture? What does the culture have to say about prayer? What is prayer? The second category is why you need prayer. I think there's a great misunderstanding as to what prayer is and what it's effective for in the life of people. The third category is how to pray. How are we to pray? In what ways and what maybe means are there different ways of praying, different places of prayer? What to pray is another category. Or what not to pray. Those are kind of tied together. The last category I thought was interesting is why is prayer difficult? <laughs> it, I mean, it encompasses a number of ways of thinking through um, because I think of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer seems to be the one that for most believers and most people in general is very difficult. In fact, of all the articles that I, I went ahead and searched for on spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, discipleship, meditation, the articles on prayer outnumbered each of them. Uh, it shouldn't be too surprising. Prayer is fundamental to the Christian walk. Prayer is commanded. It's modeled by Christ. It's foundational to much of the pages of Scripture, whether in reports of praying or written prayers or reports of answered prayer or even accounts of the prayers of the wicked being ignored. Yet many, if not all of us, would confess that our approach or our mindset our hope, our trust, our understanding, or our practice of prayer is lacking. It's because of this that the elders and staff are concentrating on the messages in 2022 on the series called Pray in This Way. And so by focusing on confession and adoration and intercession, uh, I hope that we would our time spent in prayer over the next number of weeks, and as we've done over the last several weeks, would be helpful for us as a body of believers. In fact, I'd hazard a guess that the majority of our time in prayer is spent in intercession when we think about it, Uh, when we think about the way that we pray, petitioning God for any number of things, ways of thinking for specific people. I would guess the majority of that intercession comes from hearts that are determined to glorify God and pursue godliness and honor Christ and persevere in our faith. But we also recognize that our hearts are under attack in any number of ways. Hearts that are pleading with God to encourage others, ourselves and the church, to overcome temptation and sin and pursue the things of Christ. And yet those kinds of hearts are under attack. So that is the kind of prayer that I I hope that we see modeled well by Paul in Ephesians 1. Writing to the saints at Ephesus Uh, who Paul describes as faithful in Christ Jesus at the beginning of chapter 1, but who we find later in the uh, book pleads with them in chapter 4 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And in chapter 6, he implores them to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here in chapter 1, Paul is praying for them that they would have the strength and the knowledge and the understanding to do those very things. 
prayers that are spoken in the midst of their faithfulness, but which faithfulness is needing encouragement. It's, it's in the fight to walk worthy and it's in the fight to find strength in the Lord. The same kind of prayer that we need modeled for us. The kind of prayer that would truly fan the flame of faithfulness among us. So in what way do we pray according to Ephesians 1? Well, pray like this. In his prayer for the church at Ephesus, Paul models three fundamentals of God-directed intercession. Three fundamentals of God-directed intercession. Three fundamentals of the kind of prayer that would seek to intercede with God on behalf of one another. The kind of prayer that would bolster the faith of those who are in Christ. Let's look at the first fundamental, verses 15 to 16. The first fundamental of God-directed intercession is that these kinds of prayers are those that flow from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving. They flow from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving. Look back at the text, verses 15 to 16. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. You see, in the previous 12 verses, Paul has been praising the triune God for the spiritually blessed position of believers in Christ. Paul highlights the electing work of the Father in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 1, the redemptive work of the Son in verses 7 to 12, and the sealing work of the Spirit in verses 13 to 14. And it's for this reason, the spiritually blessed position of believers in Christ, that Paul has reason to give thanks to God for the Ephesian believers. In light of all that God has done in salvation, Paul is prompted to pray. And reflecting on the electing and atoning and authenticating salvific work of God, Paul can't but respond with his own God-directed prayer. But Paul's prayers are not just reflective of what God has done in salvation, but what is continually shown to be the result. Look back at verse 15. For this reason, for this reason, reflecting on all he just recounted, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Paul's prayer is also prompted by what he is hearing of the outworking of that redemptive work of God. He's heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among them. Paul at one time would have been intimately acquainted with the faith of the church at Ephesus. Uh, He founded the church. He spent nearly three years with them, personally connected with their growth and discipleship. And yet by the time of this letter, he had been away from them for some five to six years. But he was personally disconnected from them physically, but he's seeking to be spiritually connected to them as he's hearing about the reports and the outworking of their faith. He's purposed to remain informed about their continued faith. His care for the church here is so evident. Look back at verse 15 and note the kind of faith that prompts Paul's thanksgiving. Notice it's centered on the person of the Lord Jesus. Their their faith is not a nebulous faith. It's not a cosmic faith. It's no longer a faith in the God of Artemis. But it's a specific and personal faith in the Lord Jesus. As recounted in verses 3 to 14, this is the Jesus who is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus who is the Christ, the anticipated Messiah. He is the Christ who is the means of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places with God. He is the one who is the means of adoption to God. 
He is the one in whom is redemption by his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. The wisdom to understand the mystery of God's will. And he is the one by whom we have our sovereign inheritance. The faith he sees in them and continues to hear in them is a specific personal faith in Christ. But notice also that it's an evident faith. The vertical faith in Christ has found horizontal expression among themselves. Uh, Paul has not just witnessed nor heard of their proclamations of just mere mental assent. No mere mental assent can be witnessed apart from outward action. Their faith can be testified about because it exists among them. Their, their faith has resulted in outward actions that can be seen. It's not hidden in the mind only, but it finds expression in their actions. This is particularly noted as seen in their love for all the saints. Their faith in Christ has found specific expression in their love for one another. A focused, intentional love directed toward all the saints. Their love expressed all those in Christ at Ephesus without prejudice or distinction. It was not a love to only those who were the most lovely or lovable among them, but to all the saints. And Paul heard of their faith outwardly expressed, particularly in their love for one another, and he responds with unceasing thanksgiving for them to God. The outflow of Paul's heart in hearing of their faith and love is thanks to God for them. But the object of Paul's thanksgiving is God for his electing and redemptive and sealing work and saving faith and its result in outward expressions of faith and love. Thanks be to God. As they continually are brought to his mind, he is actively receiving reports of their faith and love and he is constantly giving thanks to God for them. Paul's initial response to the work of God through these believers is thankfulness. Thankfulness. And taking up interceding on behalf of one another, I wonder what is necessary if our God-directed intercession would flow from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving? I think we at least must know one another. How can we ceaselessly express thanksgiving for one another without knowing for whom and why we're thankful? We must know of the work of God and salvation in one another. Now, many of you can say, we've heard of the work of God in many in our congregation. We've heard their testimonies prior to baptism. But I wonder, how are you actively engaging one another in ways that let you see and hear that faith in Jesus Christ exists among us? I think this could be transformative in, in the ways in which we relate to one another. Are, are you continually only finding fault in one another? Which is, is a necessary means of, of God to use for us in fighting sin, but do you also look for evidences of God's grace in one another? Are you growing in your understanding of how God is actively working in each one of us to put off sin? Of how God is working in and among us to graciously serve the body? Are you seeing evidences of faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among us because it's expressed in our love for one another? Because as we grow in our knowledge of the faith in Christ that finds expression among us, our intercession for one another can't but flow from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving. 
So the first fundamental of God-directed intercession that is modeled by Paul in this prayer is that they flow from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving. The second fundamental that Paul models in God-directed intercession is that they contain God-dependent petition. God-dependent petition. Having recounted how his reflecting on God's work among them in the gospel explodes upon his heart in thanksgiving to God for them, Paul now recounts what he prays for them. His intercessory petition is simple, yet it's pretty profound. Uh, It reflects his desire for the continuing work of the gospel in and among them, and his dependence on God to bring about that desire. Look back at the text at the end of verse 16. While making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to notice first how these are personal prayers. And notice, noting that he is making mention of them in his prayers, we shouldn't have in mind just a corporate faceless blanket mention. He is praying for them specifically and personally. These prayers that are so regular as to be ceaseless are directed to God on behalf of real, specific people. Paul is expressing personal love and affection in his care for this church and its members. He makes direct personal mention of them to God. But notice also these prayers are not just to any God, not to all gods, not to the gods that dominated the Ephesian culture. These were prayers to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ that that echoes the title given in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This God whose Son is in the heavenly places with him, in whom believers were chosen before the foundation of the world, through whom we were predestined as sons through adoption, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his lavish grace, and in whom we have the hope which will be his glorious praise. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our personal Lord, the one foretold in the prophets, the Christ, that God. But God... Paul also describes God as the Father of glory. One commentator states, in the immediate context, God has revealed himself in election, predestination, redemption, revelation of his will, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All these characterize gracious acts which bring praise to his glory. He is not only a glorious Father, but the Father to whom all glory belongs, or of whom glory is the characteristic feature. It is to this kind of God that Paul prays. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. But look back at verse 17. On what is Paul depending on God to grant for this church? What is Paul depending on God to grant for this church? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In short, Paul is praying that they may know God. He's praying for them to know God. But I think the question that comes to mind is, how do believers then grow in their knowledge of God? Well, look at the extent of Paul's prayer. 
for believers to grow in their knowledge of God, it must first be God-given. Paul's pray, Paul prays that God would give it to them. In and of ourselves, we are incapable of knowing God. It must be given by God. But notice how Paul expands on that request. Paul is specifically praying that God would give these believers wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom can be translated as insight or true insight, uh, insight into the true nature of something. So Paul is asking God to give believers true insight into the true nature of himself. But he's also asking God to give believers revelation in the knowledge of him. One commentator defines the New Testament use of this word well, the New Testament use of the word revelation. He says that it always has theological significance, referring to the unveiling of those things which were hidden in God and unknown to humans. Revelation is some hidden thing or mystery of God that is unveiled by God and cannot be discovered by human investigation. So the meat of Paul's request is that believers would grow in their wisdom and revelation and the very knowledge of God. It's interesting to look back over the blessing Paul gave to God in verses 3 to 14. And it's not difficult to see that knowledge of God is at the very heart of the gospel. Knowledge of God is at the very heart of the gospel. For why would God bless believers with every spiritual blessing in Christ? That they might know him. Why would he choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, that we might know him? Why would he make known to us the mystery of his will? Or why would he grant an inheritance according to the predestining, his predestining purpose? Why would he, in our hearing of the gospel message of the truth, seal us by the Spirit at our believing in him? To what end does God save lost sinners? He saves us that we might truly know him as God. To what end was man created? To know God. What was ultimately broken by our sin? Our knowledge of God. We no longer saw God but looked only to ourselves as God. Paul is praying that believers might grow in their deeply personal and intimate knowledge of God. That our understanding and love in all areas of our being would know him in greater and greater portions. But notice Paul is not asking God to somehow cheer us on to greater knowledge of himself. Knowledge of God is spirit enabled. Look back at the text. May God give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Both phrases, give you a spirit and eyes of your heart may be enlightened, point to the work of the Holy Spirit. And asking God to give a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Paul is not asking God to give believers an attitude or a desire for wisdom and revelation. This is not a request for a different way of thinking, but it's a direct reference to the work of the Spirit. Believers can't in and of themselves conjure up peering into the mysteries of God. These are spirit-enabled. That's what Paul has in mind. Not a human-generated wisdom and revelation, but spirit-enabled. This is also evident at the beginning of verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now the grammar in the Greek is difficult here. and You can see it's even evident even if you have an NASB uh, 
translation of the Bible, you can see the phrase, I pray that, is shown in italics. Essentially, that means that these words are not in the actual Greek, but have been inferred by the translators from the Greek. And this phrase, uh, the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, seems to have been written in parallel to give you a spirit. It's attached to that request. So a shortened form might be, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened in the knowledge of him. If so, these are not two requests that Paul has, but connected as one request. In in fact, it serves to remind believers of the work of the Spirit, enlightening the eyes of their heart that Paul has already shared of in verses 3 to 14. The electing, redemptive, and sealing work of God has made known to us the mystery of his will. So as believers have the eyes of their heart enlightened at conversion, so we grow in that enlightenment in our knowledge of God. So what kind of God-dependent petition would bolster our faith? Uh, What kind of petition would be a means of persevering us in righteousness when our flesh tempts us? That we would hold fast when the evils of this age seek to rob us of our heavenly blessings. May we grow in our knowledge of God. Church, may we plead with God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, recognizing that we have had the eyes of our heart enlightened by the spirit. Paul's prayer for believers to grow in their knowledge of God flows from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving and contains God-dependent petition. Finally, third, Paul anticipates God-informed understanding of himself. The final way Paul models God-dependent petition is it anticipates God-informed understanding. God-informed understanding. Look back at verse 18 and look at what purpose Paul has for asking that believers be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, having had the eyes of their hearts enlightened in the knowledge of God. Look back at the end of verse 18. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul here prays that believers would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God so that you will know, you will know, And praying that believers would grow in their knowledge of God, Paul anticipates that they may gain God-informed understanding of that knowledge in three ways. Paul wasn't praying that believers' knowledge of God would be limited to these three things. And he wasn't praying that the extent of believers' knowledge of God is only these these three things. However, he is praying for a comprehensive knowing. And these three areas of knowledge that Paul anticipates will come to believers as he prays for the knowledge of God. He's asking God to continue to grow their faith that they may grow in their understanding of the work of God 
in them in the past, the future, and the present. So what would most strengthen the faith in the Lord Jesus that Paul heard existed among them? A God-informed understanding of himself. And first, what is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? Paul first anticipates that believers would understand and know what is the hope of his calling. The biblical understanding for hope, I, I think, is radically different to how most cultures or even our culture understands hope. In fact, when I think about how I typically use the word hope, it's usually as wishful thinking. <laughs> an outcome or an object or something that I want out of my kids, um, but there is no guarantee of its coming to fruition. I hope this happens. But the Bible uses hope with a radically different kind of sense. It uses it with a sense of confident expectation. A certainty that what God has promised will come about. Hope in scripture is tied to God himself, whose character and nature gives no room for uncertainty. In the expectation of fulfilled hope, that which God has promised. So hope in this instance looks back to the predestining, electing call of God in salvation. Chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Notice also who, whose call the believer's hope points to. Whose call is it? It's God's call. And Paul desires for believers to know what is the hope, that guaranteed confident expectation they have in the call of God to salvation by his choosing in eternity past believers to be predestined to adoption as sons into his family. So what is that hope? It is that what God determined in eternity past for his people in salvation will come to pass. He will bring to completion all those who have been called. Uh, This hope is strengthened further when you consider that God has sealed you with him with the Holy Spirit. Sealing was a means of authenticating something as genuine and indicating ownership. That seal told the one who received the letter or message that it was the genuine word of the sender. They could trust the message belonged to the sender. It was an authentic and trusted message. So the Spirit's seal authenticates us as believers in Christ. It marks us as belonging to Christ. This sealing work of the Spirit should fill us with confidence and security of our belonging to God. So believers know fully the hope of his calling. Two, secondly, Paul wants believers to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. To know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. If knowing the hope of his calling bolsters a believer's confidence in the past work of God, Paul here is praying that believers will find joy and confidence in the anticipated future glory with God. Paul wants believers to know of their place as God's inheritance. So in verse 11, he speaks of the believer's inheritance. But here, he speaks of believers as God's inheritance. At the time when believers are taken from this earth and come into the presence of God, they are his inheritance. This parallels Paul's description in verse 14. Based on the electing, redemptive, sealing work of God, believers are God's own possession, as he calls us. 
And believers are not just any inheritance, but described in this passage by the riches of the glory of his inheritance. God, who is the father of glory, as we saw in verse 17, has purchased believers so that he may have them as his richly glorious inheritance. Paul wants believers to see how valuable they are to God. Believers are God's richly glorious inheritance. Believers can stand confident in this life not only because they look back to the work of God in eternity past and the hope of his calling, but they can confidently see themselves as God's future richly glorious inheritance. We can be confident that the means God uses to preserve his people in their salvation, the word in his church, will sufficiently keep us in him. We do not need to fear. If God is to have a richly glorious inheritance in the saints, we will see eternity when we are brought to the Father by our brother Jesus Christ. We will endure. Believer, know with confidence the past work of God. Have joy and confidence in the anticipated future glory with God. Now last, know the power of God towards believers here and now. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, believers are to know the greatness of God's power which he directs towards those who believe. So what is necessary for believers to know? What would encourage them? Well, what we understand about salvation in the past and future is necessary, but of particular importance is what is available to the believer here and now? will know of the greatness of God's power directed toward you. It is a power that is of surpassing greatness. God's power directed toward believers is of exceeding or extraordinary greatness. It's an extraordinarily great, magnificent power. And this surpassingly great power of God is toward us who believe. Paul further expands what he means by the surpassingly great power of God at the end of verse 19 He stacks one synonym for power on another by saying these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. The surpassing greatness of of his power is according to the working of the strength of his might. Or it could be written, the surpassing greatness of his power is according to the power of the power of his power. Working in this instance speaks to the actuality of his power. It comes from the Greek word from which we get energy. Paul uses this term most often to refer to the actual functioning power of God. Actively exercised power. It's working. And strength is the extent of his power. Again, Paul uses this term most often to speak of the dominion of God. The dominion of Christ. Shows victory over all other powers. And in fact, as a verb, it's used to refer to something being seized or captured. This is the extent of God's power. There is no extent. It's absolute. His rule and dominion is absolute. And the final word for power used is might or the inherent power of God. It describes the power present in the very being of who God is. God's power as an attribute. God is power and it's a mighty power. So what should we know of the power of God available to believers? It's powerful. (laughs) We should not leave this passage questioning the extent, the inherent nature of, or the actuality of the surpassing greatness of God's power to believers. 
Believers, here and now, know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. A power in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. One commentator summarizes it this way. He says, Paul states that the end of knowing God intimately is that we might know what is the surpassing greatness of his ability or potential power, which is according to the mighty activity of power derived from his inherent strength. This power is directed to all who believe. It is the kind of power that is needed to survive the satanic hostile powers and world system that surrounds us. That that kind of power is available to us as believers, I pray that that's a comforting, empowering, convicting, enduring, persevering kind of knowledge. But just so we aren't left wondering about God's power as purely conceptual, something to just know, Paul's prayer continues by giving evidence of this surpassingly great power that is in accordance with the working of his strength and his might. And Paul gives three examples of how God's power is operative in Christ. He is defining the kind of power that is available to believers, that we are to know And these aren't difficult to see, but look back at verses 20 to 23. Evidence of God's power, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The kind of power available to believers is evidenced by his power which he brought about in Christ. That's seen in verses 20 to 21. It's evidenced by his power which he brought about in Christ. How should believers characterize the operation of the power available to them? Well, the first example Paul uses is of how God's power is operative in Christ. The kind of power that is available to believers It is the same power God brought about or exercised in Christ. And Paul specifically shows that God has brought about his power in Christ in two ways. By raising him from the dead. God's power in Christ was first displayed in raising him from the dead. Out of all those who have died, God has displayed his power in raising Christ from the dead. Paul's connection of God's power in the resurrection of Christ it is not unique to this passage alone. Listen to two other passages that highlight the power of God in resurrection of Christ. Romans 1 verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The power brought about in Christ is seen in the resurrection. But not in the resurrection alone. Look at the last part of uh, verses 20 to 21. It's also seen in by seating him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. The same power which raised Christ from the dead and is available to believers is further clarified as that same power which places Christ in the seat of power and authority and honor. And this place of seating describes the extent of this power and authority and honor. First, we see it's in the heavenly places. 
the place where God dwells. And it's at God's right hand, the place of honor and authority without question. And it is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And this group of terms Paul uses to describe evil, spiritual, angelic, personal beings that seek to come against believers. Christ is placed far above them. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world, forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that places him far above these wicked spiritual authorities. Not slightly, but far exceedingly greatly above them in authority and honor and power. It is further clarified as a power and authority and honor that is far above every name that is named. There is no one whether created spiritual being or created earthly being that is not under the power and the authority and the honor of Christ. He is above every name. His name, his authority stands alone. And it is a power and authority and honor that is far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. No one now or in the age to come, literally the kingdom of God, will exceed or slip out of or usurp the power and the authority and the honor of Christ. The first example of how God's power is operative in Christ, the kind of power that is available to believers is the power he brought about in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of God. The second example of how God's power is operative in Christ, the kind of power that is available to believers is demonstrated by Christ's dominion, the outworking of his power and authority and honor. Look at the beginning of verse 22. And he puts all things in subjection under his feet. Now this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 8 verse 6 in which David recounts the God-ordained role of man to rule over creation. But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verses 6 to 9 applies this verse to Christ. And he does so in that the last Adam takes on perfectly the mandate to rule because the first Adam has failed. And Paul also applies this verse to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. Listen to me as I read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's our passage. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjected to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So according to that passage, not only are all things in subjection under his feet, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians and infers to, I think, in our passage, that all enemies will be abolished, even death. The enemies of God will be abolished. Notice, too, that it is God who puts all things in subjection under Christ's feet. So it's God's operative power in Christ is exampled by being brought about in Christ, and it is the power of God displayed and accomplished in all things being put under subjection or rule of Christ. Christ. 
Then there's a third and final example of how God's power is operative in Christ. The kind of power that is available to believers. It is his power which he gave Christ as head over everything to the church. Look back at the end of verse 22 to 23. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's power is demonstrated in his gift of Christ to the church. This Christ, who in summary of all that has been said of his power, authority, and honor, who subjects all things under his feet, is head over all things. This is the summary of all that has been said of Christ up to this point. In total, Christ is the head of all things. But not only is Christ head over all things, but God has given him to the church. And implied in that is that Christ is given as head of the church. If he's head over all things, he is also head of the church. This corresponds well with Ephesians 5, 23 to 24. Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And just as in verses 22 to 23 in our passage, Christ is the head and the church is the body of Christ. One helpful quote from one commentator God subjected all creation under his feet, including friends and enemies alike. On the other hand, he gave Christ, the head of everything, to the church whose members have an integral relationship with Christ. The members of the body of Christ are bound to each other and are related to Christ as our redeemer, sustainer, and head. The gift of Christ to the church is further expanded in the final phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fullness in Pauline usage seems to indicate the power and perfection and excellence of God. So in describing the fullness of him, this is the display of God's power and perfection and excellence in Christ who then fills all in all the church. God's gift to the church of Christ who is head over all things and the means of filling the church with God's power, perfection, and excellence is the final example of God's power operative in Christ. So God's operative power, the kind of power that is available to believers is evidenced in that he brought it about in Christ. He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and he gave Christ as head over everything in the church. Believer, The God-informed understanding Paul has in mind for you is that you would know what is the hope of his calling. That you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I hope you can see how such a prayer would help us practically in our very real, tangible struggles for joy and contentment and perseverance, and assurance. I hope you can see how this prayer would be practically helpful for us as we struggle against anger, and anxiety, and pride, and laziness. These are all very real battles we have to seek to weak, that seek to weaken our faith, and seek to weaken its practical expressions in this church and the world. 
May we pray with God-directed intercession that flows from ceaseless Godward thanksgiving. A thanksgiving that is fueled by our intimate understanding and knowledge of the faith that exists among us. May we pray with a God-directed intercession that contains God-dependent petition that through God we would know him and flee from the worldly call to know self only and run to and immerse ourselves in the knowledge of God. May we pray with God-directed intercession that anticipates a God-informed understanding of himself that we might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glories of, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Uh, I, I know Brett mentions it often, but might I suggest using the membership directory to give greater intentionality and emphasize the deeply personal nature Paul expresses in this prayer. Uh, have in mind specific people when you pray. Say their names and plead with God to bring about that which he is promising. In doing so, think on what might transform our church body. How might our faith be strengthened to withstand its very challenges? How might our love for God grow that pushes out worldly affections that lead to destruction? How might our understanding of God and salvation grow our love for Christ and dependence upon his power? How might our love for one another increase as we see one another through the lens of God's deep affection for us as his inheritance? How might our compassion for the world be stirred? May we be a people who pray in this way. Let's pray together. Father, I'm overwhelmed with thanksgiving to you and thinking on the faith in Jesus Christ that is so evident in this body. The very backgrounds and means that you have brought sinners to yourself through a singular Savior, a singular gospel, it's overwhelmingly gracious. I thank you for the unique expressions of the outworking of faith that we witness in one another each and every day. I pray that you would give each of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you. That having the hearts that have been made alive in Christ, we might know you more fully. I pray this so that we would know the hope that we have in your calling us to yourself. Apart from your sovereign electing work and drawing us to yourself and awakening our selfish dead hearts, we would have no hope. I pray that we would know your love for us and how you saved us by the work of your Son so that we would be your gloriously rich inheritance. May that understanding combat sinful views of self and of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray also that we would recognize the surpassing greatness of the power you have toward us. May we not shrink from steadfastness because we think ourselves impotent to overcome sin. May this knowledge of your strength help our resolve because we see its work in Christ. Father, it's in the name of the one whom you raised from the dead, whom you seated at your right hand, whom you placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, whom you placed as head over all to the church. 
It is in that name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.